Welcome to this episode of Dialogues with Creators, a podcast about creators and creative people in all areas and walks of life. If you have listened to the previous podcasts, you know what we are trying to do here and why. As usual, I want to recognize our producer extraordinaire, Clemencia Villafuerte. Hi, everyone. It's Clemencia. I'm excited for you all to join us today, and I'm excited to explore a new side of creativity with our guests. I hope you all enjoy. Thank you. It is an honor to have author Renee Winchester today, and for more than one reason. First, she is the first guest who doesn't currently live in Northwest Georgia. So that means we've gone interstate. We'll get to that in a bit. Second, she is an award-winning author in different genres and subjects, and she's internationally known. We'll get to that, too. And third, she's a friend of some folks I know, but we've never met, actually. So that's a plus. And one of her friends is Amber Lanier Nagel, who was our third guest. Renee, welcome to Dialogues with Creators. Thank you so much for having me. I've really never met a stranger, so I just feel like, you know, we're having a family reunion here. That's great, because we're going to be talking about family, too. So I always give guests an opportunity to introduce themselves to the audience with information you would like to share instead of me trying to um, figure out what I should say. And I think you're totally capable of doing that. <laughs> so tell us a little bit or a lot of bit about who you are and what you're about. You know, it's so hard to talk about yourself, yes. even though we're on social media as part of our job as an author. So it's really hard when people say, you know, who are you? Because my answer is always, I'm, I'm a no one. I'm, I'm no one. I'm someone who didn't give up when that resistance came calling and when I wanted to quit and I didn't believe the lies that I should quit. So I want to encourage everyone who, if today is the day that the voices quit, that means you're on the edge of something amazing that's about to happen. So I want to start by, by doing that, which has nothing to do about me. Um, I lived in Georgia for 17 years and we'll we'll talk about it probably later in the segment. But I moved because my mother had passed. Mm -hmm. And then shortly after I arrived in North Carolina, my mother-in-law passed. Uh -huh. So I did have no plans on leaving Georgia. Georgia's been very good to me and I miss it. But I'm, I'm here now. And I also believe in blooming where planted. So that's just a little bit about me. Oh, that's great. And that's so positive. And I really appreciate that. And I wanted to uh, let's just go into that, uh, what you said about not giving up. And I I'm taking that as as far as um, you mean, in reference to your writing endeavors and getting published and that kind of thing, correct? Absolutely. I, I mean, it just kind of on the broad spectrum, because I work in a community college and we work with a lot of GED students mm -hmm. and, you know, they they feel like they are quitters mm. and I don't believe that they are. I believe that they have just put 
the life that they wanted to live on pause. So if I could encourage anyone to believe that it's okay to put down your work in progress, it is definitely okay to walk away from it. Some people should walk away from it. I preach to myself more than anyone else. But yeah, don't don't quit, but just take a break. It's perfectly okay to take a break. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I think if someone's going to be... Uh, try to create anything and not just writing, but anything they, they need breaks and they need to not get kicked off the path by the naysayers, by the people who don't understand what you're trying to do because writing is pretty lonely and a lot of people don't understand it. Oh, I'm definitely lonely. No one in my family reads my work. Um, I'm still a member of the Atlanta Writers Club. So if you think that your family is going to read your work, I, uh, you just can email me anytime you need some support because I did not have any support. Probably just the opposite. Writing takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of energy and we don't necessarily understand how much of our time and energy that it takes, but it does. And, you know, I've always tell authors, if you have somebody in your family that's supporting you, you better be extra good to them because not everyone has that. And I'm not saying my family isn't supportive. I'm saying I don't have anyone to bounce ideas off. Mm -hmm. I can't sit down and say, what do you think about this? And I think the Atlanta Writers Club and the Georgia Writers and the Calhoun Writers, you know, I'm a member of all of them because I need a lot of support. Don't think of that as a weakness. The more people that that surround you and support you, the stronger you're going to be as a writer. Thank you. (laughs) That's just, uh, I I love what you're saying. Uh, Your most recent work is Outbound Train, which I recently finished. It is excellent. And I want to say to everyone, go get a copy. (laughs) And I really mean that. It is a story that keeps you reading. Everyone wants that. And it features three women in three generations of the Parker family. To call them strong is an understatement. I don't want to give too much away, but the three women are Perlene, the grandmother, who is suffering from periods of dementia, but that doesn't define her. It's part of who she is, but she's so much more. And there's a couple of scenes in the book that are just quite involving and funny, but again, I won't give them away. Her daughter, Barbara, works selling clothing items in the main employer's plant in town, and she has a 16-year-old daughter, Carol Ann. Each has their own story arc, as they say, and yet they are tied together. Would you like to add anything to what I've said about this book at this point? Well, thank you for reading. Um, And if anyone has read Outbound Train, I'm going to do like all other desperate authors and say, please leave a review. Uh, Reviews do matter. I think people don't purchase books based on a review, but people do look at reviews. And I think that's important. Mm -hmm. And I like the way that you said, you know, they're connected, but the women are stitched together. And as we are in our own family, we're, we're stitched together, whether that be for good or whether we want to take a seam ripper and disconnect ourselves from someone, uh, we are stitched together as a family. And, uh, and Granny Pearl Lane, I get a lot of requests to write a book just about Granny Pearl Lane because she's so much fun. If I could add anything, it was that in the beginning, for those that haven't read the book, each uh, character has a chapter. And in the beginning, Granny Pearlene had her own chapter. 
So it was Barbara, Carol Ann, Granny Perlene, and we rotated that. I kind of had that all woven together. But my critique group, again, this is why you need to belong to a critique group. I will always recommend that. We loved Granny Perlene so much, she was stealing the show. So I had to kind of rein her in and I had to take those chapters away from her. I didn't lose any of the content, but I could just almost sense readers skipping over and reading, just wanting to read what Granny Perlene had to say because she was so much fun. Mm -hmm. Yes, she is. (laughs) She's a great character. And uh, the title comes from the train that sort of punctuates the day in their town. And from the desires that Barbara and Carol Ann have about leaving the town. And that town is Bryson City, North Carolina. So why Bryson City? Originally, it wasn't Bryson City. Really? Okay. Yes. See, I'm a very honest person. And I will tell you, give yourself permission. Give yourself permission. If it's not working, if you are fighting something, give yourself permission to change it because it was not originally Bryson City. And the more I got into the story, I couldn't connect. And I thought, well, if I can't connect, then the readers are going to feel that. And so that's why you have to give yourself permission to cut out what's not working for you uh, as well as what's not working for the story. And I emailed Bryn McLean. We, we know her. She wrote One Good Mama Bone. And I said, I'm thinking about setting it in Bryson City. And she's like, girl, why wouldn't you do that? And the reason I wouldn't, of course, because you've read it, is that first chapter, which was not written chronologically. It was not the first chapter, but I lived in a very small town. And when you're writing about your hometown, there's a lot of pressure there. And there's a lot of um, opportunity for someone to misconstrue what you're trying to say or think it happened to you or thinking you're Granny Perlene, which I readily admit I want to be Granny Perlene. But when I changed it to Bryson City, a weight just lifted off of me and I knew I'd made the right decision. Okay. So there is a strong sense of place uh, in Bryson City uh, in your novel. It's not just a place that it happens to take place. It's part of the story and part of why that story takes place. However, this is the Bryson City of the 60s and 70s. In the author's notes at the end of the novel, you show how much um, is, is Bryson City your hometown, right? Bryson okay. City is my hometown. Okay. Um, and you you talk about how much you love your hometown. And can you talk about Bryson City of your family story and how it has changed or stayed the same? So Bryson City now is a tourist town. Mm. The town you come to now is not the Bryson City that we grew up in. There is a movement right now for the Chamber of Commerce, Tourism Development Authority to completely change the town square. And they want to essentially do more paving and less green space. And everything now, every decision is being made, factoring how we look, how we appear to tourists versus, you know, how can we 
support our, our people who live here. And when, when a town becomes a tourist town, Asheville's a primary example, the decision-making process changes from what it once was. How are we going to handle the traffic? Are we going to have food trucks? What, how are we going to have events? And because the town is built in the road, we can't expand. We cannot accept any more people coming to Bryson City. And so now what has happened is we now have this tourist experience that is nothing like they used to have because of traffic, because there's no public transportation, nor will there ever be. And because 83% of Bryson City is owned by the federal government. We're the gateway of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. So all of those things aren't revealed in this novel. That's kind of coming in the next novel. But that sense of place, how did I create and pay homage to the town that I once knew? That town is dead. It's gone and it will never return. So when you see all of these, you know, we were in Our State magazine and it gives you this little window into this perfect Norman Rockwell town, that's to sell a magazine. That's where social media comes in and and challenges authors to be authentic and writers to be authentic because the Bryson City I grew up in is is not here anymore. That's why I had to pay tribute to the hardworking people. This was a blue-collar town, just like all the other blue-collar towns that are now being forced, essentially, to be a tourist town because we have no industry. We have no, um, you know, no textiles, no exports. So we lose a little bit of who we were. And that was my way of, of saying, this is who we were. This is how we grew up. We knew everybody. And yes, there was a Hubert's bar, was it named Hubert? But yes, we had, you know, we were a dry town until 10 years ago. You know, all of those things play in there and come out when you're writing that story. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating because it's a little bit of a microcosm of, global economic changes and things like that without getting into that dry subject. But it really is the, the lived experience. Well, that's a redundant phrase, but it's the lived experience of of people and how it was. I know that the city, the town where my husband's from, it's, it's in South Carolina and it was a mill town, et cetera, et cetera. And now it's where they uh, it's a BMW plant. So they came in. So it's totally different place than it was, you know, and uh, it has changed the upstate so much. So of South Carolina. So that's that's fascinating. Um, this podcast is about creativity. And to me, that is a process more than a personality trait. What is your process? How do you work, do the work of writing and writing fiction? So I love this question because I've just recently learned that there are two kinds of authors. There are plotters and there are pantsers. There's seed of the pants and there's outliners. And I think I don't have to tell anyone listening that they already know by now that Renee Winchester does not and will not ever write an outline. Because 
Um, Granny Pearlene is a perfect example of why I can't write an outline because she would not allow me to do that. She would never allow me to put her in a box. And so when I was riding outbound train and I reached my point of resistance, there are many levels of resistance. If you have not read The War of Art, please get The War of Art and it will explain what resistance means. Resistance is real and it's out to get all of your creativity. And so I would email Terry Kay and we would do this back and forth a lot. I'm never writing again. I'm blocked. I'm stuck. I'm going to burn everything I have. You know, that kind of, we're a little dramatic every now and then. And he said, do you know what your problem is? Do you know why your characters are not speaking to you? And I said, no, if I did, I would not, I would be writing. I would not be, you know, bemoaning my problem to you. And then he said, you are trying to make them do what you want them to do. Your job is to watch them and write down what they are doing. That is your only job. And so I have to go back and say, if you believe the people that say you've got to outline, let me be your permission. You don't have to. Having said that, I, I use visual images to inspire me. When I get in my mind a photo or an image of, of the person that I'm writing about, I will go and find a similar photo somewhere so I can look at that photo. And so I can have a conversation with that photo. And this is where people are going to think Renee's crazy pants. But I do. I carry that photo with me. I have three photos with me right now for my work in progress. That what that does is it I, I'm a very honest person and I'm a very loyal person. So what that does is marries me to that character and I want to be true to them. And so I don't want to disrespect them. I don't want them to do anything they don't want to do. Or if something horrible has happened, I want to honor them by giving them some grace and by uh, showing a different side of something that's happened to them. So as I mentioned with Granny Pearlene, you know, I had to rein her back uh, with my work in progress. Now, my character wasn't really strong enough to carry each scene on her own. And so as I was editing, hand to heaven, as I was editing, this dog came in the scene. I saw this dog run into the scene and I saved my notes. I write everything by hand. And I put in red, oh my goodness, a dog just came in and this dog is going to change everything. And it changed everything. Thing. It allowed me to show her humanity better. It gave her strength when she was weak. It was just amazing. And that would have never happened if I'd outlined. He would have never come in. I would have boxed him out. So give yourself some grace. That's a really interesting definition, I think, of of character-driven fiction versus plot-driven fiction to step back and let the character 
do what he or she is going to do and, and just observe. And and I, I'm not sure nonfiction people who do not write fiction understand that because the characters become as real to us. It's not some kind of yes. psychotic thing, but they are real to us. You know, sometimes it is psychotic, I think. But but they will give us the plot if we give them the voice. If we let them speak, then they will show us the plot. And 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 it's not immediate, but when it comes, it's like, oh, there it is. There it is. It's not the story I thought it was. It's not what I was trying to be bossy and say, you're going to do this. And then they run from you. I mean, you can make your characters do whatever you want to, but they're going to be shallow. Whoops. Nobody's going to like that. (laughs) But you can make a character do whatever you want to. But what I want to do is I want the reader to love the character or hate the character. I, I want the reader to believe that character. I don't, which is why I don't stereotype. I can't, you know, I write Appalachian strong women and they're easily stereotyped. And I I refuse to do that. And that's because that's who I came from. And that's who I wouldn't be here without them stereotype or not. I read that your book has been translated into French. How did that happen? (laughs) Well, wouldn't we all like to know that? If I could, if I had an insight to that, it would be, you know, wow. Uh, It was definitely divine intervention on some level. It was such a divine moment. You never know how you are going to impact another person. And you may never live to see the reward of your impact. So I'm very cautious about what I discourage from people because the discouragers are out there in droves now. Having said that, my publisher came to the South looking for strong Southern voices. I didn't know this. I had no clue. I don't know who whispered my name in her ear other than a book fairy on on this planet. I have no idea. But the funny story is I got this email saying I'm your translator. And I'm like, yeah, all right. And you want me to marry you and send you money to a account off of the coast of Africa. So I did not open the email. Now, a week passed and I got a Facebook message saying the same thing. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe this is true. So I emailed the publisher and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's it's been sold to, to France. And I'm like, what do you mean? A week has passed. I now look like an idiot because I haven't responded to her. She's going to think I'm a horrible human being. And so I had to clamor and try to rebuild some bridges there because I didn't respond to the original email. Well, I think most people would be sort of, uh, yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah. I'm surprised your publisher didn't tell you that. Now tell me about your publisher. What what, what company is this? So the journey for that was uh, about six or eight weeks before the book was to be published. My original publisher sold to yes. Sold to iron stream media. And they were expanding their market and wanted to do fiction. They wanted to expand into fiction. They were textbooks only. 
before then. And so I was very concerned because that nonfiction market does not tie in with the fiction market whatsoever. You know, you can't promote a fiction book to the nonfiction booksellers that you've been. It was it was a very uh, concerning time for me. They're, they've been incredibly good to me. I mean, they turned out a remarkable book and mm-hmm. I got it in France. So. <laughs> okay. Okay. So who was your, can I ask who the original was? Lighthouse Publishing of the Carolinas. Oh, okay. Okay. I am familiar with Iron Stream. Uh, they're in Birmingham? Is they're in Alabama. Mm-hmm. Alabama. Okay. Bradley's amazing. He he allows me to bounce all kinds of cockamamie ideas. I'm, I am his granny Perling. Okay. Okay. Do you know French? No, I don't speak a lick of French. I wasn't. I, I didn't have the opportunity in school to take mm-hmm. that. Foreign languages weren't required, and I think, I mean, it may have been offered, but as that's a part of the story that is true to life in this small town, you either were selected to go into a a blue collar job or you were chosen to go to college. And if you didn't have those credits on the way out, you know, you couldn't have gotten in and you couldn't have, you wouldn't have had the basics to do that. It is not the same day as it was when I was in high school. Well, that's a good thing in that regard. (laughs) More opportunities, maybe. Um, Cooking is an important part of the novel as is sewing. How do you, how do this fit into your character's lives and, and how does that, how is that part of the story? So the women who raised me earned extra money baking cakes. And I had to honor them by doing that because that is true. And that is how, you know, Santa came on Christmas because from those cakes and my aunt, my mother did not work textiles. My aunts did. And I remember there was a clothing closet. There were, we got our clothing from the reject pile. And, you know, our women, all of our women, north, south, regardless, we make do. And we take a little bit of nothing and we turn it in to something incredible. We can turn that straw into gold. We scrimp, we save, we do without food, we do whatever it takes to make lives better. And so just throwing that in, it, the, the food mattered, those apple stack cakes mattered, uh, especially here. But I will let your, your listeners know something no one else knows. Um, my publisher in France has asked me to write a little companion cookbook that's going to be released in France as a Mother's Day gift for them. And so she asked me to come up with 10 recipes. Now, asking a Southern woman to come up with 10 recipes, uh, a Southern woman who writes, I think I gave her 21 recipes, and those were just as as narrow as I could get. We had to do biscuits. And then, you know, the tie between France and Western North Carolina is so strong and so amazing. They grow rhubarb. You know, we grow rhubarb. Uh, They have bear garlic, which is wild leeks. 
or ramps, they have that and, and we have that. And so that food has allowed us to come together, even though we don't speak the same language. And that's what is so refreshing about just being released internationally. That's a dream come true. That's pretty cool. I congratulate you on that. We've been speaking with Renee Winchester of Bryson City, North Carolina, author of Outbound Train. At this Christmas season, let me encourage you to purchase books as gifts. There are many great books to choose from, and I would really recommend that you try to introduce your friends and family to new authors or self-published authors whose works you have liked. And I would definitely recommend Outbound Train by Renee Winchester. Thank you for listening. This is Barbara Tucker for Dialogues with Creators.